Oh, it's on? Okay, good. I have no announcements from Sunday, so let me see. We've got to rely on my memory. Scary. Okay, a week from Sunday. Uh, next Tuesday night, there is no Bible class because we will be at pre-trip. We take a lot of equipment up there uh, to use to record uh, the sessions at the pre-trip conference, and that's going to be Tuesday, December the 6th. No uh, no class, no live streaming. So if you're a live streamer and you try to get on on Tuesday night and you can't, the rapture has not occurred and there's not a technical problem. Speaking of technical problems, to the live streamers, uh, we need your help. We had, there was, there's some problems that are going on that are not our fault that have to do with how certain things are set up technically. And by the live stream group that, that takes care of that. And so we need to know if you have any problems uh, whatsoever, please inform us. You go to the uh, section on the Dean Bible Ministries website that says post your question here and just uh, put down the information and let us know what time you lost the live stream and where you are located. Now, we had a lot of problems Tuesday night, but most of that was just in the Houston area, and apparently there's some way in which this is structured that we think we got it fixed. Um, it was, uh, you know, most people live stream for short times. We live stream for an hour or more, and so it was by it, it, too technical, but it needs to be uh, addressed, and they changed how... The feed goes, so it should work better. I, also, we have the uh, annual Christmas dinner on Sunday, December the 11th. So uh, there's a sign-up out in the fellowship hall for desserts and for side dishes, and uh, I think you can take it from there. That should be a tremendous time uh, for everyone in the in the church to be able to spend some time together. And uh, we're going to have some special music from the kids. And anybody who has kids who want to sing in the children's choir, uh, children's singing group, then uh, please talk to either James Bagg or Mark Reisinger. I think that's pretty much it. Okay. How shall young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we are in right relationship with the Lord. And that means that if we have sinned, we need to confess sin, according to 1 John 1, 9, and God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to come together this evening. We're thankful for the fact that you provide for this congregation in so many different ways. Father, we're thankful for uh, the place where we meet. We're thankful for the technology that we have where we can um, broadcast these services, put them on the Internet, and people all over the world can watch either 
uh, live or they can watch via recordings. Father, we're thankful that you use your word in this way, and we pray that it will go forth and it will uh, bring fruit in terms of those who are saved and those who are also responsive to the word and growing spiritually. Father, we know there there are many people, even locally in the congregation, that are unable to attend uh, anymore due to health reasons, and we pray that you would strengthen them and encourage them in their time of illness, and that also you would uh, sustain them through the prayers and through the encouragement of other believers. Father, we pray for us tonight as we study your word that you would help us to continue to have a better uh, understanding of what it means to be humble and its relationship to obedience and to submission. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're studying in 1 Peter. We're in 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're studying the section that begins in 1 Peter 2, 8, 3, that it, 2, 2, 13, that is talking about submission to government. And then in 2, 18, it talks about servants or slaves being submissive to masters. In chapter 3, it will go on to talk about wives being submissive to their own husbands. And throughout this entire section, the framework is how do you deal with unjust suffering? That which is undeserved, that which is horrible in some cases, extreme in some cases, but because we are in circumstances uh, in the devil's world, the issue often comes down to submission in terms of authority. And that is related to humility. And humility is related to grace orientation. But humility and grace orientation are the foundation for impersonal love. For so many things in life are grounded on this idea of humility, which is so difficult for us. So I've titled this message, Will We Ever Understand Humility? And there is so much talk about pride and arrogance and humility, and usually the people who are criticizing other people for the lack of their humility are exhibiting their arrogance in the process of criticizing others for a lack of humility. It has always amazed me in the midst of churches and congregations that you have Christians who are critical of other Christians for one thing or another, and uh, often they are condemning and judging other believers when their very attitude is one of arrogance, and that's just as much a problem as anything on the other that the other person may have done. So as we've worked our way through 1 Peter 2, what Peter's argument is is that no matter how unrighteous this, the master may be, no matter how wrong the master may be, no matter how just the circumstances, no matter how uh, difficult the situation, no matter how how painful or miserable the uh, situation might be, the model, the example for us to follow is that of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, just by way of quick review... 2.18, Peter says, servants be submissive. The word we're studying is that word hupatasso, which is a word throughout Scripture, and it means to submit. It means to obey. It is authority orientation, recognizing that in every sphere of life, God has established certain authorities, and if you don't learn to submit to authority, you can never truly be a good leader or be someone in authority. That's a basic principle of any kind of leadership. First, you have to learn to follow uh, before you can learn to lead. Uh, They exhibit this in the Israeli army because 
no in, in the U.S. Army, you can go to ROTC in college, or you can you can go through boot camp, and then you're uh, maybe selected while you're going through basic training to go on to uh, officer candidate school. In the Israeli Army, you have to come up through the ranks. You have to actually serve for a while as enlisted before you get a recommendation based on your exhibited leadership ability to advance and become an officer. They don't have officer schools or ROTC programs, things like that, that you can defer out after high school and then go through some sort of uh, higher education, including military training. And then when you come out with a degree, you get you get uh, a commission. You ha- every Everybody comes out of high school, they go into the IDF, and they serve. And if they exhibit those leadership traits, then they will be selected to go on to leadership training. So um, it's done a little bit differently there. And it is you learn to lead by being a good follower. What we see here in this connection with submission in 2.18 is what follows in 2.19, where Peter says this is commendable. And the word there is just the basic word for grace. This is grace. Uh, commendable is not quite the idea. It, Peter understands that submission to authority flows from grace orientation. In 2.20, he says the same thing. If you take it patiently, if you do good and you suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable. Same word again, charis. It means it is. this is grace before God. And then in verse 21, he says, to this you were called, that is to suffer unjustly and to demonstrate grace orientation in the midst of that unjust suffering. And the example he gives is Christ who suffered on our behalf. Talk about someone undeserving, someone unjust, and someone who went through extreme physical suffering as he was taken to the cross, the beatings, the the, the lashings, uh, the pain that was involved in all of that, carrying his cross, uh, the cross piece to the uh, to Golgotha to prepare for crucifixion, all that was involved in that far surpasses any of the pain and misery that we focus on and think that we have a justified reason to rebel against an authority. So Christ is our example that you should follow in his footsteps, arguing in verse 22 that he was absolutely sinless, so he did not deserve any kind of suffering. Now, I want to plug this in to where we've studied in the past with spiritual skills. I want to structure this a little differently. What we have in the spiritual life are these 10 basic spiritual skills. Now, I've always loved this because this is a tremendous categorical framework for helping us think about application of Scripture. We study through Scripture, and we look at different passages and situations. For example, we looked at one uh, Tuesday night in 1 Samuel chapter 19, and when we think about this human behavior, human interaction, we think about it in terms of a difficulty, a challenge that's presented there in the text, and it's the problem that David had facing Saul. So what... If it's a problem, if it's a challenge, if it's difficult, what are the basic spiritual skills 
that you would use in handling that kind of a problem. And it involved, as I pointed out on Tuesday night, faith rest drill, trusting God, turning it over to him in every situation. We have to deal with the faith rest drill. We have to we have a binary choice, one of two options. Either we believe what the scripture says in defining the circumstance and that God and God alone is the circumstance or we believe that our friends, our family, our emotions, our circumstances tell us more about how to handle the situation than God does. That's what it boil, you boil it down even further. Either God knows what he's talking about and we can trust him or we know more than God does. God, who is omniscient, knows everything and always has known everything and says that he has provided us everything we need to handle any situation or we're saying God is a liar and that we know better. That's the basic options. There may be various permutations on each side, but those are the basic options. Now, in order to use these spiritual skills, we first have to be in right relationship with the Lord. That's why the foundation is confession of sin. 1 John 1, nine, something we all know, we practice this, go through it every time we have a Bible class. Uh, some people have said, well, that just seems mechanical. And I haven't addressed that in a while, but I had a meeting with someone not too long ago, and they made that observation. And I said, every system of training seems mechanical at first. Whether you're learning how to tackle somebody in football, you're whether, whether you're trying to learn how to shoot a, uh, a basket, a uh, free throw, whether you're trying to play music on a piano or some other musical instrument or dance, you're learning something new and it's you you at first you have to do it by the numbers and then gradually over time it becomes more natural to you and it reaches a certain fluidity of of application and you don't think about it anymore and it's no longer mechanical but if you've ever tried to dance or you've ever tried to play piano and and make you know play technique exercises it seems extremely uh extremely mechanical but that's just the learning process. So we have confession of sin. Now, as soon as that happens, we're back to where we're walking by the Holy Spirit. And so I put the first one in black because we're in sin and we're walking in darkness. And the way out of it is to confess sin. And so once we do, we are walking in the light. We are walking in the truth. We're walking by the Holy Spirit. And it, while we're walking by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is filling us with his word for application. Then there are three skills that are basic and fundamental to everything else that we have to master. And so I've put them on the second row. There's the faith rest drill, grace orientation, and doctrinal orientation. In faith rest drill, we're mixing faith with the promises of God. It's very simple. We trust God. You either trust God or not. And when you trust God, you obey him. And when you're not trusting God, you won't obey him. That him says it all. Trust and obey, trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. And happy in Jesus is joy. That's the end result of these spiritual skills. That's the top four. So we go through these uh, this process. Grace orientation means we have to truly come to grips with what it means to be oriented to grace. That means you have to come to grips with how unworthy you and I are to be saved. 
God doesn't save you because you have a scintillating personality. God doesn't save you because you look good. God doesn't save you because you have such great talents. God doesn't save you because you have done something that's great and wonderful and uh, and, and is extraordinary. Uh, God saved us because he loved us despite our obnoxiousness and how horrible we were in relation to his righteousness. Once you come to this, come to grips with this, then you can begin to understand what grace is towards others, that you never deserved anything in this life. And when we come to grips with the fact that we are so undeserving, then when other people say things and do things and they hurt our feelings and one thing happens or another, then we can handle it better because we realize they're just as uh, they're just as much of a malfunctioning, corrupt creature as we are. And therefore, because God forgave us, we can forgive others. That's grace orientation. And then doctrinal orientation means that we study the word so that we can orient our thinking to God's God's plan, so that we can think about situations. We have a personal conflict one of the places you can go for an illustration of how to handle that is 1 Samuel chapter 20, which we studied the other night where David and Jonathan are working out a way to handle the situation with, with Saul. Those are the basics. Then we get into the next level, which is a personal sense of our eternal destiny. When we're living today in light of eternity, we are seeking the uh, reward of our inheritance, Colossians 3.24 and First uh, Peter 1.4, which we've already studied. Notice I use these First Peter passages here since we're in First Peter. First Peter 3.18, we grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's used for grace. It's used for doctrine. We grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ personal sense of our eternal destiny. We have an inheritance that is re- with that, that is undefiled, that is reserved in heaven for us. So we're living today in light of eternity. Then we have three more intersecting and interdependent uh, spiritual skills. Personal love for God. We grow in our love for God as we come to know him and come to understand his word. Loving God is not just having a nice feeling about God and having gratitude. Gratitude is not love. One of the things that young people should understand whenever they think they have romantic inclinations is gratitude is not the same thing as love. Just because somebody is nice to you and you're grateful for it, that doesn't mean you love them. Just because God has provided salvation for you and you're grateful doesn't mean you yet love him. Love is the result of time and learning, knowledge, and uh, building that relationship. Then we are, as a result of our love for God, we learn to love others. We learn what love truly is, and whether we know them, which case it's impersonal love because we don't have a a personal relationship with someone if we don't know them, or whether we do know them, in which case it would be unconditional love because we're going to love them in the same way you might use as an illustration, a dog loves you as the master. 
There are no conditions, and that dog is happy to see you, whether you're in a good mood or a bad mood, and no matter what you've done to that dog, that dog is going to be happy to see you and loyal. So that's an example of unconditional love and occupation with Christ. Um, Occupation with Christ, that shouldn't be Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. That should be Hebrews uh, 12, 1, that we are fixing our hope on the author and finisher of our faith. And the result of all of this is that we can then have real joy in our soul. We can count it all joy, James 1, 3, and John fifteen eleven and seventeen thirteen are two passages where Jesus said that he would give us his joy. And because it's his joy, it's a joy that is not dependent upon circumstances or situations or people or their responses to us, but because it's grounded in the immutable character of God, it is not going to be shaken. And it's achievable by everyone here because Jesus made the promise that he was giving it to us. So this is the example that Peter gives, and I pointed this out last time. First Peter 2.21, Christ suffered for us. He's the Lamb of God. He's unblemished and spotless, and the picture from the Old Testament it was he was brought to the temple. Then you would place your hand upon that innocent lamb, and you would recite your sins, and that lamb would, uh, they would be transferred to that lamb, and then the lamb would have his throat cut because of your sin. That's what happened to Jesus on the cross. He bore our sins in his own body on the tree, having died to sins that we might live for righteousness. Now, all of this is really a picture of Jesus' humility and grace orientation toward us, his humility toward God, and toward the human authorities, the wicked, evil, unrighteous human authorities that forced him to submit and to die. Now, I want to talk about humility, and I think that whenever you study a doctrine, one of the better ways to approach it is to start at the beginning of the Bible and see how this doctrine is developed down through uh, the ages, starting in Genesis and going through the Scriptures. Now, I'm not going to do a detailed study in the Old Testament, but that's going to be our starting point is an Old Testament passage in Numbers chapter 12. Numbers chapter 12 and verse 3, there is a parenthetical statement about Moses. Moses was very humble. There are some passages that talk about Moses as as being meek, and that is also a way in which uh, this particular word uh, is used. So when we look at, I'm turning to the passage, this is stated in the midst of a rebellious situation. If you turn to Numbers chapter 12, let's just look at this briefly. You have a rebellion being fomented by his own siblings, by Miriam and Aaron. And they're speaking against Aaron, because, I mean, speaking against Moses because he has married an Ethiopian woman. And uh, that would indicate that he has taken a second wife because his first wife, Zipporah, was a Midianite. So he's taken this second wife. And um, verse 2, they say, has the Lord spoken only through Moses? So they're challenging his spiritual credentials, and they are jealous of the way God is only speaking through, through Moses. 
And we're told in the midst of this rebellious attitude on their part that the Lord hears it. And then parenthetically, we read in verse 3, Now the man Moses was very humble, more than all men who were on the face of the earth. Now we ought to think about this just a little bit. The word that is translated humble is the Hebrew word anav, which is in the box to the left, and it's usually translated being humble or being meek, a concept we have terrible time dealing with in our culture, probably other cultures as well. It's often distorted. Pseudo-humility is rampant among those who can only operate on the works of the sin nature. And we all have that problem. And the way the average person hears humility is something like this. I need to be a doormat. I need to let people walk all over me. I just need to give up all my rights and let everybody take advantage of me. Now, is that what you picture Moses doing that, leading three million Jews through the wilderness? I don't think so. They would have, he never would have lasted 40 years. He would, they would have left him by the side of the road, uh, worn out and used up within the first two weeks. The idea of humility in the Bible, as we're going to see, is someone who has authority orientation. Somebody who is obedient to God and therefore can lead other people, can be an example to other people. And it's only when you are properly oriented to God's authority that you can be properly and truly humble. Now, the result of this was that the Lord brought punishment on Miriam and uh, Aaron as a result of their disobedience. He is clearly affirming Moses and the Holy Spirit's assessment of Moses' character here is his humility. Now, you have the Hebrew word on the left, and the word I put on the right is the Greek word praus. And this is how it was translated into the Septuagint. Now, that's important to understand. There's two Greek words we're going to see tonight that are used in the passage we're headed to, which is Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And this is uh, uh, one, it's not used in that passage, but it's one of three words that form a sort of a, a syn- the, the three basic synonyms that talk about different facets of, of this idea of humility and what is translated meekness and, and gentleness. But it is, Jesus is gentle and meek when he is manhandling the money changers in the temple, both at the beginning and at the end of his ministry. He goes into the temple, and he is physically grabbing these men and bodily throwing them out of the temple. He is physically violent with them. He's not tapping them on the shoulder and saying, would you please leave? He's not doing that. He is grabbing them and he's throwing them out. He is picking up their heavy tables and he is turning them over and scattering all of their money. And he is throwing this. He is physically removing uh, this from the temple precinct. That's the, that is meekness. Okay. That is Jesus being gentle. Because Jesus is never not gentle and not meek. So what this means is we've got to completely overhaul 
our concept of what it means to be meek and gentle. It so happened that uh, there was a series of Facebook comments on the page of a pastor friend of mine in California the other day and somebody who apparently had constantly given him heartache on his Facebook page uh, what made this comment that because he's in California as a pastor in California is the land of the fruits and the nuts and the uh, people who are meek and mild and don't know any better and scared of their own shadows and this person made a comment that he was just too violent He's a pastor friend of mine, is a black pastor. He's a strong advocate of the Second Amendment. And so I came along, and he was saying, you need to be meek and mild like Jesus. Jesus was never violent. And I decided sometimes it's a lot better for somebody else to defend a pastor than for him to defend himself. So I stepped in and made a few appropriate comments about how meek and mild Jesus handled circumstances and that this individual needed to redefine what he understood as humility and meekness and mildness. And, of course, I know millions of people will read that, but it needed to be said in a teachable way. Unfortunately, it fell on deaf ears because it turned out that my friend had unfriended and blocked this individual after so many years of him uh, or giving him a hard time. But that's the problem. All through Scripture, you do it. I do it. Unbelievers do it. We have a frame of reference and a definition and concept for something that is shaped by a human viewpoint pagan culture, and then we take that definition and that idea and we read it into Scripture. And what we need to do is go to the Scripture, see how these words are used and exemplified, and then change our concept of what it means to be Jesus meek and mild. Jesus is the one who told his disciples to make sure they had a couple of swords with them. He would, today he would say, do you, do you have your AR-15s and your 30-round magazines, and are they loaded up, and do you have one in the chamber, locked and loaded? That's what he would have said. We have to understand who Jesus really is as the creator God of the universe. So we have these two words here. Um, the main one, because we're working in the New Testament, is prouse. And it's sometimes translated gentle or meek or kind. But that always has to be understood that it's done within the context of the love of God and the justice of God and the righteousness of God and how those mix together in the character of God. So let's look at another passage in the New Testament and we'll see these same words that show up. Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30. Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he is talking to them about discipleship. This is not a verse telling people how to get saved or justified. This is talking to disciples. It's in the context of the, of the Pharisees who are leading their disciples astray. And that's the background here because it's talking about this concept of a yoke. And a yoke, as is pictured on the slide, on the slide was a a wooden uh, was a uh, it's like two wooden collars that are joined together that you would put around the neck of of two oxen so that they would pull in tandem and pull together in strength and often when you were training a new 
our younger oxen, you would put him with an older one, and he would be brought into submission to the older one. So this idea of a yoke carries the connotation of learning submission and learning respect for authority. It was used in pharisaical language, as I've taught on uh, many times on our study on Sunday morning in Matthew. I ought to say, who can stand up and tell me what that background is? I'm not going to do that. But that's the test. What have what What did the Pharisees do? They talked about two yokes, the yoke of the kingdom and the yoke of the law. The yoke of the kingdom was binding on everybody, and that's basically fulfilling the Shema and the Shema requirements in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And that was, in, that was binding on all women of, women of all ages and all children. But when a male became a son of the covenant at his bar mitzvah, that's what that means in Aramaic, a son of the covenant. When he enters into the covenant, then, according to Pharisaical theology, he took upon himself the yoke of the law. And this meant that he had to not only fulfill all 613 commandments in the, in the uh, Torah, but he had to also take upon the burden of all of the secondary and tertiary applications, the thousands and thousands of other uh, traditional commandments in the Holocaust, the oral law uh, of, of the Old Testament. And this was a burden. Nobody could carry that load. And so that's what Jesus is talking about. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. They're laboring to gain the to gain approbation from God by obeying the law. Jesus said, come to me and I will give you rest. How will you do that? You will take my yoke on you, grace orientation, and you will learn from me. See, that's the discipleship element. We saw this when Jesus is announcing his woes, uh, his condemnation, the seven woes in Matthew chapter 23, uh, one one of those was that the Pharisees traveled far and wide. They traveled everywhere to get find uh, uh, disciples that they would convert to Pharisaism. And most people believe they weren't just looking for converts to Judaism. They were looking for Gentiles who were proselytes at the gate who had not accepted the full burden of the law because usually because they didn't want to be circumcised and that. that um, they were the Pharisees were making them full proselytes, which meant that they would completely come under all of the obligations of Pharisaism and all of the traditions of the Father. So that was the yoke of discipleship in Pharisaism. So Jesus is saying, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. You're not laboring under legalism. Then he said, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Now, the two words we have in the Greek for gentle and lowly are significant here. We have the word uh, praus, which is the same word we saw used in the Septuagint in Numbers chapter 12, verse 3. And it has that idea of being gentle or meek or kind. And tapainas uh, for lowly is the basic part of a word group that relates to humility. And the core meaning, the original meaning under classical Greek was low. Somebody who is low, they're low in the economic strata. Uh, they have been brought low by the circumstances of life. 
and then it became used as a figure of speaking to someone who didn't was not exalting himself. So that came to be uh, to refer to humility. Paul uses this same two words in Second Corinthians ten one. I Paul myself and pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Now, another synonym is used under gentleness that I'm not going to go into, but you have meekness used in this verse, and then Paul relates it to himself, who in presence am lowly among you. So he's using proutes, that's the word, that's a form of the word we just looked at, uh, meaning gentleness or kindness, and uh, tapinos uh, as synonyms. Tapinos, meaning humble or low. So you're going to see this as we go through the slides. I've kept the same color. You're going to see tapinos show up in several places. And this is the same word uh, that is used in 1 Peter 5.5. 5. So my point here is that prautes and tapinos are synonyms. What's interesting in the historical study of these words is that they were never used in a good sense by the Greeks until after Christianity. When you get the writers of Scripture, this often happens with several words in the New Testament, divine revelation gives them a whole new connotation and a whole new significance. And being humble was a bad thing in Greek culture. It, it meant you were a nobody, and nobody wanted to be a nobody. So they... That the words were not, never had a good connotation until you get revelation in the New Testament and it's applied to Jesus. Then all of a sudden, these words, for the most part, following the New Testament period, they're never used with the same negative connotation they had uh, by the Greeks prior to that. It, the language is changed. Just as a side note, ideas change the meaning of words and change language. And when you change the language, it changes. it's a reflection of the change that's taking place in a culture. Divine revelation in the New Testament changed the significant characteristics and how the characteristics of love and joy and peace and humility were understood in the Greco-Roman world. And that is what transformed the paganism of the Greeks and the Romans into what became known as Western civilization. Without Christianity, Western civilization would just be as, as pagan and brutal and violent and disrespectful of individual human beings and uh, human life as every other pagan culture. But the Word of God transformed it so that what all of the glories that were produced in Western civilization can be traced back to the change that was brought to the Greco-Roman culture by Christianity. This word is just one example of that. At 1 Peter 5.5, 5, when we come to the end of 1 Peter, we have the, these two words used again. Uh, Peter's talking, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. There's our word for submit again, hupotasso. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another. So it's an attitude of humility toward one another and towards those who are in uh, positions of authority. And be clothed with humility. That's how you are. You can't be submissive without humility, and humility leads to proper submission. They were to be clothed with humility. That's the word on the left. This is a form of 
Tapainas here on the right is the adjective, but then you have an, it joined with this frasune ending, which indicates a characteristic or a quality. And so that is the, the broad word that, that used there. So you'll be clothed with the character quality of humility because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble, tapainas. Those words are important. Now we come to the passage that I want to go through. This is the prime illustration. And every time I go to Philippians 2, I just love this passage. It was one of the very first passages I really studied as a young Bible student uh, trying to learn how to do Bible study methods in preparation for teaching uh, some kids on camping trips with Camp Panah when I was young. And so I was taking the, the year before, and I was learning how to do verse-by-verse study and exegesis and do word studies on my own and all of those things. And so much that I studied and dug out at that time has paid off down through the years. Uh, I also had an opportunity to write an exegetical paper on this in seminary, and I've taught it several times, but I always love this passage. It tells us what humility is. First Philippians 2.8 says, talking about Jesus, that he was found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient. What we'll see is that loses some of the sense here. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Now, Philippians chapter 2, I want you to turn there. Uh, we'll start in verse 1. But what we see in Philippians 2 is a passage that is at the very center of understanding who Jesus is. There are three other passages that are that are important. John 1, Colossians 1, and Hebrews 1. If you can remember that, those three books in the first chapter, you've got it. And then Philippians 2. You will understand the person and work of Jesus Christ if you can grasp what's taught about him in those three, uh, three chapters. Being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. That, again, see, we saw this in First Peter 5, 5, the connection between submission, which is the flip side, the other side of, this, of the coin from obedience, is tied to humility. We can't be submissive and genuinely obedient from the heart, from our soul, unless there's the development of genuine soul humility. And this is what we see, of course, in the perfect Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. He humbled himself by being obedient. That tells us a whole lot about what humility is. It's authority orientation. Being obedient to the point of death. What kind of death? A justified death? A deserved death? No, a horrible death. A death that violated the law of, of Israel at the time. It was a violation of of the witnessing requirements that were found in the Mishnah. It was basically a a manufactured case against him, and the Roman government managed to get manipulated into crucifying him. It was just a horrible circumstance, but that's exactly what God used to bring about our salvation. Now, here's a point of application. We may be in a horrible set of circumstances. We may be in something that makes us feel very uncomfortable. We may have to work with 
or spend time with or uh, people who are treating us in a very disrespectful manner or who uh, don't like us or who are actually seeking us uh, to do us harm, to abuse us in some way. And we think, God wouldn't want me to stay here. That's always we, that's what we always say. Well, God wouldn't want me to be in this kind of a situation. God wants me to be happy. That's how postmoderns re, uh, uh, reason. God wants me to be happy. Where do you get that? God wants me to be happy, but that happiness is only by being in right relationship with you, not by coming up with your own ideas of what God wants you to do. Jesus could have said, oh, God wants me to continue to be happy. I'm not going to be happy. I'm sweating blood here at the Garden of Gethsemane. I don't really want to go through this tomorrow. I guess, guess what? God wants me. I'm just not going to do it. And then I'll still, I'll be happy and God will be happy and we'll all just go sing Kumbaya together. Is that what happened? No. Because sometimes God is going to produce something through the difficult circumstances we have to go through that we have no idea of. We can't comprehend because, once again, we're faced with a situation. We're in a negative set of circumstances. There's hostility against us, and we say, I can do it my way or I can do it God's way. My way is going to be better because God would never want me to be unhappy. But that's how a lot of people reason because they don't understand that God wants you to be happy in the midst of misery. Because that's what brings glory to him. Because your happiness isn't based on your circumstances. So Jesus submits to God's authority and goes through the worst abuse of power that we can imagine in human history. Now, why does, why does Paul go into this? He goes back to the first four verses. He's talking to the Philippians because there are some personal conflicts among the Philippian congregation. Uh, later on, we're going to see that two of those people who had problems are named Euodia and Suntiki. Uh, somebody once said, this is Euodia and Suntiki. Touchy. She's a little touchy, and they have a problem. Okay, and in chapter 4, verse 2, Paul says, I implore Euodia and I implore Suntiki to be of the same mind in the Lord. You can't get there without humility. Same mind is what we have in Philippians chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 4. He's talking about what it means to be of one accord and one mind right here at the end of 2-2. So he's dealing with the fact that people have had their, some people have had their feelings hurt. Some people have, whether it's justified or unjustified, isn't the issue. J- Jesus had his feelings hurt. He had a lot hurt, and it wasn't deserved. That's where humility comes in. So he says, therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy. If you're taking Bible study 101, what would you observe? What would be some of the first things you would observe in that passage? You better come up with the fact that there are four if clauses there. If, 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 and if. 
Now, if you want to decide what kind of if that is, you would have to look a little bit in the, at the Greek because the Greek ex- language expresses conditional clauses four different ways in the New Testament. And this is a first-class condition, and that is where the if clause is assumed to be true. So in this passage, it's not true in every place that you have a first-class condition, but I think in this passage it comes pretty close to the idea expressed by our word sense because it's assuming that this is true. Therefore, Paul is saying because you have these four things, then you can fulfill the command. Therefore, he says, if or since there is any consolation in Christ... Christ is the focal point for believers, for each one of us. The issue in life, as much as I hate the little trite saying that has shown up on bumper stickers and wristbands and God knows what else, T-shirts and baseball caps, it's what would Jesus do? It really is. But it has to be the Jesus of the Bible and not the Jesus of liberal imagination or your imagination or my imagination. And it is that Jesus has provided this uh, consolation, this coming alongside, this encouragement that we have, and it's in Christ. He's the source of it. It's not medication. It's not going to the psychiatrist. Not that those things may not have a place in terms of some circumstances or situations. There is consolation in Christ. Christ has to be the ultimate solution. If there's any comfort of love. There's only one person who loves us unconditionally, and that's God the Father, God God in the totality of the Trinity. If there is any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, uh, he is the paraclete, the parakletos, the one who comes alongside to strengthen us. If there is fellowship of the Spirit, yes, there is. Uh, that Paracletos is consolation. This is a fellowship koinonia. It's the partnership of the Spirit who's working in our life. Uh, if any affection and mercy, yes, that is part of what we have in, in Christ. Then we have the command to fulfill my joy. Paul's joy in one sense, just as our joy in one sense, is dependent on circumstances. We get excited when we see believers grow and do the right thing. I get excited when I see believers grow and do the right thing. I get excited when people come to Bible class regularly because I know that they're truly interested in the Word. Fulfill my joy by being what? Like-minded, having the same love for one another, being of one accord and one mind. Remember in in Galatians 5, 17 to I mean, 18 to 21, 19 to 21. Part of the work of the, of, of the sin nature, those who walk according to the sin nature, is divisiveness, antagonism, resentment, bitterness, creating divisions and heresies. All of that breaks apart a congregation. That happens as a result of people letting their sin natures uh, be in charge. So Paul is saying the, the, the flip is you have to be like-minded. 
You have to have the same love, love one another, Jesus said, as I have loved you, being of one accord and of one mind. Now remember that because he's going to tell us what that one mind is when we get to verse 5. He then says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Don't let your little self-absorbed sin nature and your power lust and your approbation lust be the source of what you are doing. You're not to do it to build your own kingdom. There are too many pastors who have built their own kingdoms and too many people in the pews who have let them and worship them as if they are the final word in everything. Don't do anything through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. And that's our word, tapani frasune. It means humility, lowliness of mind. How do you become humble? He's going to tell them in the next paragraph. But preview of coming attractions, it's by being submissive to God's authority. In humility of mind, let each esteem others better than yourself. Don't think of yourself as always being in the right. Don't think of yourself as being the one who needs to be the focal point. Uh, we are to esteem others more than ourselves. We're to be serving one another. And when we're doing that genuinely, then we're not going to be walking around getting our feelings hurt, uh, becoming upset that this person said that or that person did this or this person is, is out to get me. Uh, verse 4, let each of you look out not only for his own interest. See, it's not wrong to look out for your own interest. It's not wrong to esteem yourself. But in addition, you esteem others as yourself, and you look out for their interests as well as your own interests. So this defines the circumstance and brings us to the beginning, back to where we were at the beginning of Philippians 2. Jesus found was found in appearance, talking about his humanity. He humbled himself. Now here's the question. Jesus is the God-man. Is he humbling himself through his human volition, or is he hum humbling himself through his divine volition? Human volition. This is all about the humanity of Christ. This isn't about his deity. This is about the humanity of Christ doing the right thing for, because he is submitted to the Father. He only exercises his deity in certain situations and circumstances when he has to demonstrate who, who he is as God. But he faces the challenges and problems and, and difficulties in his life through his humanity, using the Spirit of God and the Word of God as the example for us. How can we follow his example if he's doing it through his deity? We don't have deity. We can't do it through omnipotence or omnipresence or omniscience. So none of this at this point has to do with his, um, his deity. He, it's his humanity using the Word of God and his own spiritual resources through the Holy Spirit. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So as Paul introduces this, he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. That seems to be what we're talking about here. Verse 2, we're to be like-minded. What, what is the paradigm for that 
mind, that mentality. It's the mentality that was in Jesus Christ. We are to be of the of one mind at the end of verse 2. That is what is being defined here. This mind which was also in Christ Jesus. So if we're all imitating Jesus in his thinking, then how can there be interpersonal problems in the body of Christ? There won't be any. The only reason you get people who are out of step is because they quit walking by the Spirit. They quit focusing on Jesus, and they're focusing on themselves. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, this applies back. Let's take it back to Peter before I wrap up. I keep getting almost into Philippians 2, and we'll have to finish this next week. But you t- think take think this through in terms of a subject who is being unjustly treated by the tyrant tyranny of Nero or Caligula or any of the Caesars. You think of a slave who has a harsh master. That's the example given in in, in 1 Peter. You think of a wife who is uh, in a difficult marriage. You think of any individual working for someone who is working for a tough taskmaster, somebody who is uh, not concerned at all about them. There are all kinds of situations. You can have be in a situation where you have a professor who has it in for you. I know of circumstances where uh, there have been evangelical uh, young people who've gone to college and it's been uh, obvious because there's the manipulative nature of some professors who expose the fact that they're evangelicals right off the bat, and then they pick on them. When I was in college, it was the Vietnam era, when I was in college, uh, and I was in ROTC, went to college on an ROTC scholarship, and we had to wear our uniform uh, one day a week because we would... Um, that was just what you had to do. And that day I had a political science class and the poli sci teacher was as liberal as he could be. And he hated the military and he would pick on the guys in ROTC that were in class. And I hated having to uh, wear my uniform because it made me a target. And no matter how good you did, you were never going to do good. So, uh, that's the kind of uh, unjust situations that we learn, we, we go through, but that's how we learn authority orientation. So we have to do that. And so next time I'll come back and we will go through Philippians chapter 2, working our way through this this important passage. Father, thank you for this opportunity to think through these, to come to understand that each of us needs to learn to control our sin nature through God the Holy Spirit and to submit to you and to your word as as uh, Moses demonstrated, as the Lord Jesus Christ demonstrated, and to do what we are supposed to do uh, willingly, freely, in the power of God, the Holy Spirit, because we know that is the right thing and the best thing, and that is the essence of humility and a manifestation of grace orientation. We pray that you would challenge us with these things and that we would be responsive, positively responsive to that challenge. In Christ's name, amen.